It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. However little known the feelings or views of such a man... Hi, I'm Harriet. And I'm Ellen. And this is the first episode of the Reading Jane Austen podcast. We're starting with Pride and Prejudice and today we're looking at chapters 1 to 6. We're taking quite a structured approach to this discussion. We'll do a quick summary of what was in the chapters and then talk generally about some of the things that struck us about this part of the book. After that, we'll choose one character from the chapters to talk about. And we'll finish by stepping back a bit for a broader view. Ellen's going to tell me something about 19th century life that's significant in the chapters, and then I'm going to talk to her about the popular culture adaptations. This isn't going to be a spoiler-free discussion. The book has been available for 200 years, and there have been many adaptations in different media. We're assuming that most people have at least a rough idea of what happens in the book. But we do want to give a quick recap of these chapters. So I've developed something called Summarise in a Sentence, which I adapted from an E.L. Konigsberg book. The idea is to give a one-sentence summary of the chapters, and you lose a point for every time you say and, but you gain a point for every Jane austen turn of phrase. So my summary for the first six chapters is... Mr. Bingley enters Meryton's social life and Elizabeth and Charlotte discuss how Jane should behave with him but fail to notice that the proud and disagreeable Mr. Darcy is becoming interested in Lizzie, particularly her fine eyes. I make that three ands but also two Jane Austenisms, proud and disagreeable and fine eyes. So that gives me minus one point which isn't the best start in the world. So anyhow, let's start talking about the chapters. So I think the best place to start a discussion is probably with the opening sentence, since it is one of the most famous opening sentences in all of English literature. One of the things with this opening sentence is that some people don't realise just how funny it is, that you are not meant to take it seriously. It is so exaggerated and absurd. And yet I have at least one friend who was put off the book right from the start because he thought, and his teacher at school didn't correct him, that it was meant to be taken literally as a statement of universal truth. (laughs) But of course, while it's not a universal truth, it does set up for us the idea of the commodification of women in marriage and the idea that a woman does need to be married off to a rich man. But then that's also turned around in the second sentence when suddenly the man is the commodity because he's the property of some one or other woman in the community. So I think it's interesting, though, that right from the start, the idea of marriage is being set up as important to the book. But the idea of love doesn't come into it at all, which I think was one of your ideas. Yes, well, that was very much my feeling, that the first introduction is really, she's coming at the whole idea of marriage. First, she gives it this idea of commodification and women being supposed to look out to own men and then we go into this little picture of the Bennets acting this out in a sense that Mrs Bennet you know is is trying to boss Mr Bennet into calling on Mr Bingley and he's being funny about it and teasing her and she's being possessive and trying to push him around and so we've got right at the very beginning this idea of it being this marriage chase and then often ending up not terribly happily for anybody. And I think that's what really comes into these first six chapters. You've only got that particular view of marriage being pushed and of the sort of the husband hunting because we even find Miss Bingley engaging in it when we see her with Mr Darcy. Because, yes, of course, at the end of these six chapters, we have the discussion between Elizabeth and Charlotte. 
where Charlotte talks about how Jane should actually be doing her best to show Bingley that she's interested in him and making the most of every half hour in which she can command his attention. And, you know, Elizabeth's response to that, I think, is really interesting because she says, your plan is a good one where nothing is in question but the desire of being well married. And if I were determined to get a rich husband or any husband, I dare say I should adopt it. Now, this is actually something that, speaking more generally beyond Jane Austen and into romantic comedies in general, I think Jane Austen's books are not about women looking for husbands. Not Their heroines are not women who are looking for husbands. They're not women who are looking for love. They're people who find love. Yes. And I always get particularly annoyed with characters in other books who are out in, in quest of love. Yes, that's very much the case with hers. All her heroines suddenly have love spring on them. Uh, either that it's been long-term or, or unexpected, but it leaps on them. Mm. And in the sense, in these first six chapters, we haven't seen anyone really except very slightly Jane being leapt on by love. And then, of course, most of the suspense of the book is watching Elizabeth gradually feeling that she could be in love with Mr Darcy. Mm. But we don't see it happening to Elizabeth in these first six chapters, but we do see it happening to Darcy. And But also, just going back to Charlotte again for a second, Charlotte's philosophy is probably a much more down-to-earth and grounded, but still fundamentally the same as Mrs Bennet's. Because yes. you know, she says happiness in marriage is entirely a matter of chance. And then Elizabeth's response to that, and I actually remember this really well from the first time I read the book, because Elizabeth says, you make me laugh, Charlotte, but it is not sound. You know it is not sound and it, you would never act in this way yourself. My first copy of the book was the one I was given at school and a previous owner of it had actually highlighted that and written in the margin, yes, Charlotte would and she does, <laughs> yes. which was a bit of a giveaway to me because I didn't really know what was going to happen. No, well, it, it, but it's very much there and it's one of these things that you start to wonder, was Jane Austen sensible in having this view? But then, of course, there is that account that, in fact, she lived it herself. There's that story of what happened in 1802 when Harris Big Wither had been got together by his sisters and Cassandra and they were all staying in Many Down and left Jane alone and Harris Big Wither opposed to her. He was five years younger, but she was only 27 and he was grown up. And she said, he proposed and she said yes, and they were all thrilled to bits. And the next day she had decided desperately to get away. Mm. So she lived by that. I hadn't realised she was 27 when that happened. And of course, Charlotte Lucas is 27. Oh, right. So, yeah, Elizabeth is only 20, 21. So um, Charlotte is older than her. I think we'll be probably coming back to this theme of marriage as we go through the book because it does recur throughout. But now let's approach something else in the opening chapters, which is the gradual introduction of the characters. Because we start with Mr and Mrs Bennet, who are obviously not going to be the hero and the heroine of the book. Yeah. But it takes a while to work out who the heroine is. Yes, you've got those five girls all there. Which one is going to count? And she's doing this business of very, very gradually peeling open to you which one is going to be the one you find funniest and smartest and most entertaining. Of course, Elizabeth is the first one mentioned. 
Yeah, right at the very start, when Mr. Bennett is talking about um, his daughters, he does say, I must throw in a good word for my little Lizzie. And then you get Mrs. Bennett's response that Lizzie is not a bit better than the others. And I'm sure she is not half so handsome as Jane, nor half so good humoured as Lydia. Which is a fascinating little precursor of what's going to come in the plot. But you can hardly see that. Except, of course, well, Jane's beauty is introduced and then that's built on. But Lydia being good-natured doesn't come up for ages. And, of course, of the five daughters, they're the first three that are introduced and they are ultimately the three most significant. The other two often get forgotten by people. It's not until the second chapter we even learn that Elizabeth's name. She's referred to as Lizzie. Mr. Bennett says Lizzie. Mrs. Bennett says Lizzie. And then in the second chapter, again, she's addressed first by Mr. Bennett as, I hope Mr. Bingley will like it, Lizzie. And it's not until she speaks herself that we know that the narrator is going to call her Elizabeth. Everyone in the family calls her Lizzie all the time. Yes. Whereas outsiders often refer to her as Miss Eliza. Oh, really? Yes. Yes. I'm not not quite sure if that says anything. It's just a, a different approach to how the name is shortened by different people. So you've also made the comment in your notes that there's no attempt to build suspense into the nature of the relationship. From the beginning, we're told exactly what they feel about each other. Yes. Um, I'm guessing by they at this stage you mean Elizabeth I mean and Darcy? I mean Elizabeth and Darcy, yes. And perhaps that's not quite true. I suppose it's more significant is that you know what Darcy is thinking all the way through, whereas so often in a romantic plot, the suspense comes from the heroine not knowing, not knowing, and the reader not knowing what he's thinking mm. and it gradually being revealed. Whereas there we're told right from the beginning He sees her fine eyes and he looks at her and he listens to her talking and in a sense that almost gives you the impression of why he thinks, why we see her, what a charming person she is because he's hearing it. Okay, because initially we see him only externally. We overhear him with Elizabeth talking to Bingley about how he detests dancing and it would be insupportable to stand up with anyone except Bingley's sisters. So And that's in the third chapter, I think. And then in chapter four, the majority of that is authorial description of Darcy and Bingley and Bingley's sisters. But it's not actually until chapter six we really get inside Darcy's head and learn that having dismissed Elizabeth as not particularly attractive, suddenly he realises that she does have these nice eyes and personality and all that sort of thing. Yes. So, yeah, we, we do get him externally at first, but I think it's just throughout the book we get these brief entrances into his head to see what he's feeling but mostly we only see him from the outside perhaps you're right about that it was just that that struck me reading it that goodness we're hearing a lot about Darcy Mm. no no suspense here will he or won't he fall for her it's all very much Mm. we know what he's doing something else that's interesting in these first few chapters that I didn't really pick up on myself until I read it in John Mullen's book, What Matters in Jane Austen, is the money side of things. Obviously, we the reader are told quite early on how much money everyone has. You know, we know that Mr Bingley has four or five thousand pounds a year and we know that Darcy has ten thousand pounds a year. But it's not just us the readers. Everyone knows. Mrs Bennett knows from the start how much money Mr Bingley has and I guess this has sort of become gossip and maybe the servants who were setting up Netherfield talked to the people making the deliveries about how much money he had and they then talked to other people and it just spread through the village grapevine. So that kind of, I guess, makes sense. So it does seem quite 
unusual by today's standards to be spoken of so openly. This it probably goes right back to the person he was renting the house from and probably that came out of the land ancients from his clerks or people like that that he knew how much Mr Bingley had a year mm. because it would it would have been dis- part of the discussion and the clerks would know it and the office boy would know it and and professional confidentiality isn't really a thing well it well it doesn't seem to have been but the thing is how do they find out how much Darcy is earning because it says Mr Darcy soon drew the attention of the room, this is at the assembly, by the report which was in general circulation within five minutes after his entrance of his having 10000 a year. Where did this report come from? It could be servants gossiping to one another. It could be servants outside one-upping one another. Well, I suppose you get that in Persuasion where they ask the servant about Mr Elliot when they first see him and he says, oh, yes, his servant said his master was going to be a barrow knight someday. Yes. So I guess you do get a lot of that from the servants. It just seems odd that five minutes after he's walked into the ball and everyone is presumably in the ball, not talking to the servants, suddenly they get this information and it's circulating everywhere. Yeah, well, perhaps it's said to somebody as he comes in. <laughs> but, I mean, Mrs Bennett would not be... She would be shameless about asking servants about these things. True. A- and people... And they would know she wanted to know. So they'd be really keen. I've got this bit of information for you. I mean, Mr Bennett mightn't listen. Elizabeth mightn't listen. But there's no way that Mrs Bennett and Mrs Long and all these... All her friends, or even Lady Lucas wouldn't be terribly keen to hear these things. You know, one thing we haven't actually talked about is the background to the writing of this book. Do you want to run through that? At some time during the mid to late 1790s, Jane Austen wrote one of the stories she was always writing for the family and letting them read called First Impressions. Her friends were really enjoying it. So her father offered it to a publisher, but he wouldn't consider it. And then much later in life, she started again to try and get her work published. She went back over the earlier manuscripts she had, one of which was Eleanor and Marianne, which she fixed up and had published in Sense and Sensibility. And then she revisited First Impressions and turned that into Pride and Prejudice. So that was published in 1813. And of course, one of the things that we might be referring to as we go through the book is whether there are any echoes still of the 1790s or whether we're meant to see this book as being set entirely in the 1810s. My feeling is it does belong in the 1810s but there are some echoes of the 1790s. One example is the way the main characters, the main male characters, are referred to as surname only, Darcy, Bingley, Wickham, not just by the narrator but also by the characters. You have that also in Sense and Sensibility where they refer to Willoughby but by the time of Emma it's considered incredibly vulgar of Mrs Elton to talk just about Knightley rather than Mr Knightley. Is there anything else you think? Well, I think we've, we can pick up other bits as we go along, but that, that's a sort of a, a clear difference that you pointed out. There's just one other thing I wanted to say before we sort of wind up talking generally about this opening section, which is the line where Darcy acknowledges Miss Bennett to be pretty, but she smiled too much, because he also said that 
earlier in the conversation with Bingley, he tells Bingley to go and enjoy Miss Bennett's smiles. Oh, right, yes. Um, it's not mentioned again in the book, just right at the start we get this thing about her smiling too much. Well, um, it's probably building up for that picture of her being so friendly, so always seeing the best of people. And we're told she smiles before we're told about how she always sees the best in people and gives things a good interpretation. Mm, true. So each time, one or other of us is going to choose a favourite sentence or passage from the chapters we're looking at. And for this week, I've chosen a description of Darcy and Miss Bingley. He listened to her with perfect indifference while she chose to entertain herself in this manner. And as his composure convinced her that all was safe, her wit flowed long. I just find this such a terribly funny sentence as setting up the relationship between Darcy and Miss Bingley, which of course is then extended upon in huge amounts of detail in the next chapters we're going to be looking at. But it's also nicely balanced. It's a long sentence with a semicolon in the middle and it is so poking fun at Miss Bingley. Mr Darcy is not a figure of fun in this sentence. Um, He's just listening with perfect composure but she's entertaining herself and her wit is flowing long and just the use of words, the understated use of words, really gives you a clear picture of the way she's behaving at this time. So now that we've talked generally about these six chapters, I'd like to focus in on one character. And throughout the book, we're going to choose one character each week. But for this first week, I've chosen Mrs. Bennett. One of the first things we learn about Miss Bennett from that opening sentence again, or at least the opening chapter, is she is completely focused on her daughters getting married. And the author, and so at least I, when I read the book, completely bought in with the author's interpretation that she's quite a silly woman and this is a silly approach to take to life. But I still remember years ago, well, in 1995, in fact, when the BBC production was on TV and I was talking to a friend who'd not read the book and a couple of episodes in, he made the point that had never occurred to me. The question isn't why is she so focused on her daughter's marriages, but why isn't anybody else? Why aren't they concerned about getting married? Because they know just as well as she does that when Mr. Bennett dies, they will have nothing but the income on £1,000, which is like £40 a year, which is not a great deal. So they really do need to make a good marriage. And yet Mrs. Bennett is the only one who seems to care about it. And she's treated as a figure of fun for this. What do you think that says about either her as a character or the novel's approach to marriage? Or is it going back to the fact that the book was conceived when Jane Austen herself was in much the same position as those girls and wasn't bothered. She was in her early 20s when she wrote First Impressions. Maybe it's just because it's the only thing she thinks about. I know, but she also has news. True. She cares about (laughs) visiting and news. She's drawn in much broader strokes than a lot of the other characters. Not Lady Catherine. Not not (laughs) Lady Catherine and not Mr Collins, but all of the others in the Bennet family, even Mary aren't drawn as broadly as Mrs. Bennet is. So she's not quite a different style of character, but more exaggerated than the others. Yes, yes. Well, Well, she looks more like one of the illustrations of the period, which had never used on Jane Austen since. But those kind of grotesque people, Guildfield or whatever his name is, and Rowlandson, she's in that category of drawing, of Mm. presentation. Oh, the other thing I was thinking about is 
how her marriage came about, which again, I think we more or less covered. She just took it for granted that you look out for the best job available. And obviously Mr Bennett, who did fall in love with her, or was very attracted to her, and there she is. Who's better than that? He's country gentry. She's only local uh, local professionals. Mr Gardner is her brother in trade. Yes. Mrs Phillips is her sister, married to, married to an attorney. Yeah. And yet, even though Mr Bennett is really... When you take it objectively, it's really quite horrible to her oh, a lot absolutely. of the time. It could be partly that he never gets a response. He got ruder and ruder and ruder simply because she never minded yeah. or she, she responded to him quite um, bouncily. Mm. But also I think, I think she's really quite proud of his cleverness yes. because there's that bit you get in, in the chapter where she's saying how rude Darcy was to Elizabeth and she says, I quite wish you had been there to give him one of your set-downs. Yes. She, I think she really is quite proud of his cleverness and she doesn't seem to mind that he sometimes takes it out on her but at the same time he he just he kind of rolls with it you know she just carries on and on and he lets her carry on and on and in makes these occasional interjections and she continues carrying on yes well, well, the, oh, well now it's a little, the little bit later when she wants him to say that the horses aren't available to pick up jane <laughs> and so the, and he says there's plenty of times they're not available and she insists on having them. Mm. As though they, then in a sense she gets her own way with him quite a lot mm. and this is his payback. Yeah. yeah, so he basically lets her do what she wants provided she lets him make sarcastic comments as often as he wants. Yes. Not and actually articulated as a deal but that's the way it's, it's shaken down over the years. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and of course... Um, the other thing is it's fairly obvious that regardless of how soon he lost any intellectual respect for her, they've obviously kept on having sex for quite a long time because yes. they've got five daughters and they continued to hope for a son for years after Lydia was born. Yes. But another thing is Lydia is her favourite of her daughters, but she does love them all. She's incredibly indignant about Mr Darcy's treatment of Elizabeth. Oh, yes. And later on... When Jane is sick and she goes to visit her, she would have been very upset if Jane had been genuinely unwell and in danger. It says yes. that, but because she's obviously not in danger, Mrs. Bennet yes. is quite happy to make the best of the situation. Well, she likes the girls, and mm. yes, she is indignant about Elizabeth. Mm. But Lydia, I mean, Lydia's got her nice sort of coarseness, hasn't she? Mm. And bounciness and sticking up for herself and mm. not caring. And mm. Another thing that we see in these chapters well it's just a passing reference but it opens up all sorts of ideas which is at the end of chapter five when they visited the lucases um and a young lucas age unspecified says <laughs> if i were as rich as mr darcy i should not care how proud i was i would keep a pack of foxhounds and drink a bottle of wine a day and mrs bennett's reply to that is then you would drink a great deal more than you ought said mrs bennett and if i were to see you at it i should take away your bottle directly the boy protested that she should not. She continued to declare she would, and the argument ended only with the visit. Now, again, you could interpret that however you want. It could just be her carrying on in the same way as she does with Mr. Bennett and not letting anything drop. But at the same time, it's kind of this nice engagement with a little boy, yes. sort of arguing with him on his level. Yes. And so quite possibly when her daughters were young, she also had a very good relationship with them as children. It's just as they've got older, and Jane and Elizabeth in particular have 
outstripped her intellectually. Yes. Um, maybe it's a little bit more distant. Yes, I think that that's a possibility. One thing I sort of thought right at the beginning is, do we know her Christian name? No, we don't. No. And we don't know Mr Bennett's Christian name either. No. We've decided that for each episode, I'll give a little piece about an aspect of Jane Austen's society that seems particularly pertinent to what we've been looking at. And for this episode, I've decided to talk about class. The three most acknowledged classes at the period were the nobility and the gentry, the middling ranks and the labouring poor. So the term middle class, the upper middle class and the lower middle class, wasn't in use at this time. That came later in the century, when the gentry and the top part of the middling ranks became upper middle class and the rest of the middling ranks became lower middle class. So basically the people in Pride and Prejudice then are mostly either gentry or trade, and the ones that are trade, they're the ones in the middling ranks. Yes. To belong to the nobility and gentry depended on having some sort of possession of land or being related to people who possessed land. And this is land that they owned and was rented out to farmers and that they lived on the rents from the the farms. Though it was usually supplemented by this stage by some sort of capital funds, sums that were invested in the funds or sometimes they're called the consuls or the three percents. This was government debt and it was very safe investment. But they might also, if they were even richer, also have money they were making from commercial enterprises in which they invested in the London Stock Exchange. But investing money in stocks wasn't the same as being in trade. Being in trade usually condemned those connected with it to being in the middling middling ranks. Well, the gardeners are definitely trade. And the Phillipses are middling ranks, not gentry. They're very borderline. The local people in in the community, they do dine with the Phillipses. Some of them do, some of them don't. We don't know for sure the officers dine with them, but we don't know if they're part of the two and 40 families that dine together. The four and 20 families. Four and 20, right. Though it seems likely that they would be included, perhaps, in some of the lesser parties. Families usually tried to get out of the middling ranks by buying land if they'd made quite a lot of money. Two examples of this in this particular section of the book. There are the Bingleys, who are apparently descended from the younger son of a landed family who made his money in trade, but once he'd done really well, he could then invest all his money in funds or stocks or something and rent and then buy land. And there they are, they're solidly in the gentry at this stage. And the Bingley sisters always try to forget where it came from. Yes, they remembered their connection with a a gentry family more than the fact that their money had been made in trade. Whereas Sir William Lucas is trade, but he's poor, he's bought land. He practically doesn't make it. He's been a tradesman, then he was made mayor of Meryton, which was a sort of a tradesman group. And then uh, the king came and he made an address to the king and the king then called him into St James's and knighted him. If you want to put him anywhere, he's pretty much at the bottom of the of this group. He's got the, his knighthood, he's got landed property. But, but see, this... I guess I, I see him as he believes he's made his way into it. And certainly his children have made their way into it. 
he is part of the gentry and Lady Lucas is part of the gentry and they are accepted by the local gentry, which are not very fancy gentry, as being acceptable to be invited out to dinner and presumably it seems appropriate that his daughter should marry a clergyman who again is at the very bottom of the gentry, but definitely gentry. And at the other extreme of the families we've met so far is Mr Darcy. He inherited land and capital that bring in 10000 a year. He has a real connection with the aristocracy. Well, of course, he's only he, a generation removed. We don't know it yet, but his mother his was mo- the daughter of an earl because Colonel Fitzwilliam is the younger son of an earl. That's so right. that And that's where the Fitzwilliam line goes. So yes. Darcy's mother and Lady Catherine were both daughters of an earl. Which is, of course, why Lady Catherine de Bourgh is Lady Catherine because she's the daughter of an earl, whereas Lady Lucas is Lady Lucas because she's only the wife of a knight. Yes. And Sir Louis de Bourgh, so her husband was Sir Louis de Bourgh, probably a baronet, possibly a knight. and Certainly a baronet. Okay. <laughs> um, it doesn't actually say in the book. No. But, so if she had not been the daughter of an earl, then she would have been Lady de Bourgh. Yes. Yeah. But because she was the daughter of the Earl, she already had the title Lady Catherine. Yes. Presumably Lady Catherine Fitzwilliam. Yes. And so on marriage, she kept that higher title of Lady Catherine de yes. Burke, whereas Lady Lucas started off life as just a miss and then a Mrs. Lucas and only became Lady Lucas after Sir William Lucas gets his knighthood. I just want to talk now about this particular group of people. The suggestion is that it's a very populous neighbourhood, lots of people. Four and twenty families. Four and twenty families dine with one another. But the only people actually mentioned are Mrs Long, the Lucases and the Bingley party at the end of Chapter 6. And Miss King. And Miss King. Miss King is mentioned once in the opening six chapters and then turns up again later in the book as the person who inherits money and Wickham starts hanging around her. Yes, but anyway, we never hear much about this neighbourhood. We don't know any of the local clergy. We don't know any squires with more land than the Bennets. We don't know of any grand dames. We don't know anything about the rest of these families or how far up the scale they go. It may be a neighbourhood where most of the landholders are a bit like Mr Bennett, who's long-term landholder, one gathers, uh, but quite a modest-sized property, sort of still has, uses the same horses for, for his carriage as he uses for the farm. But the other thing, though, is the belief in neighbours and doing the right thing by neighbours. So the moment Bingley appears, everybody rushes off to call on him. He's immediately called into the local community. People are having dinner parties he's invited to. We can see how much they saw of one another, talking about how Jane, after she's known Bingley for only a fortnight, they say, this is the amount of contact they've had. She danced four dances with him at Meryton. She saw him one morning at his own house and has since dined with him in company four times. And don't forget at that stage the Lucases have been over to see them and one of the dancers was at the Lucases. No doubt the girls have all been into Meryton, though we haven't been told that yet. So you've got this sense of a very tight neighbourhood, which is probably one of the reasons why we can hear so much they know so much about one another it's just really in spite of it being quite small a tight community 
But the fascinating thing I find is that Jane Austen is able to create the sense of this sort of community, but with naming so far almost nobody. finish each episode by looking at how the chapters have been interpreted in various popular culture versions of the book. I should probably give an overview of what the different versions have been because there are so many of them. I won't say this is the most adapted novel of the 19th century but it has to be up there. Certainly it's the most adapted of Jane Austen's novels. I think they can be split into four categories which I'm going to call adaptations, modernizations, continuations and variations. <laughs> Adaptations are the straight conversions of the story into different media. This started with stage plays, then radio plays, there have been two big screen movies, there have been at least six TV adaptations, even though most people are only aware of two, and there have even been comic books. So I've seen the two big screen movies, the two most recent miniseries, 1980 and 1995, and I've also been reading the Marvel comic books version. I've done nothing, I think, except see one movie... Which was the 1940 Olympia Which was one? the 1940. No, I think I saw a certain amount of the Colin Firth TV series. But, you know, I, I absolutely hate dramatisations of novels. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm using the term modernisations for where the story is put into a modern setting. One example is the movie Bride and Prejudice, where it's given a Bollywood touch. And there's also the web series Lizzie Bennet Diaries, in which a grad student, Lizzie Bennet, gives a video blog of her life. Another example is Bridget Jones' Diary, which I'm not as familiar with. There have also been lots of books putting the story into a modern setting, sometimes with gender switching as well. I've read a couple of these, but I won't pretend to be across the whole genre. Then there's what I'm calling continuations, sequels to the book, sometimes in different genres, like the P.D. James book Death Comes to Pemberley. Again, I've read a couple of these, but I've really only dipped my toe in the surface of what's available. And finally, the variations. I didn't make up that term myself. I pinched it from the website Jane Austen Variations, where people upload their own stories based on Austen novels. Some of these are continuations, but others are things like The Road Not Travelled, where one crucial detail is changed, putting the story on a whole different path. Or the story can be retold from the point of view of a different character. Variations can also be re genreing the books, like, for example, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Which, by the way, I won't be talking about because I read it and I hated it and I gave the book away to someone else. So there are a couple of things I thought I'd talk about this time in terms of the pop culture. One is the opening sentence of the book. It's interesting to see what the different iterations have done with that. Neither of the big screen movies used it at all. They've obviously decided it's an authorial comment. It doesn't belong in what we're doing. On the other hand, both of the miniseries I've seen did include it, both times by putting it into the mouth of Elizabeth. I remember when I first saw the 1980s version, it felt unconvincing and very stiff, and it wasn't helped by the fact that it was a conversation between Elizabeth and Charlotte, and not just that opening line, but they used a whole lot more of the authorial stuff as dialogue between the characters, and it just felt wooden and unconvincing, and I felt got it off to a very poor start. Well, I mean, I think the thing is that Jane Austen has such different variations. The people who've done this, these linguistic analysis, you know, the counting the words, they can even tell the different characters in Austen apart, let alone the difference between authorial comment and conversation. I yes. mean, some of the very earliest stuff done by that John Burroughs was noticing the different use of, of small words between her, the different characters. Mm. 
but somehow they did get away with it in the 1995 version. I think it's because it was only the one line and Jennifer Ely as Elizabeth delivered it very naturalistically. Yes. It felt properly organically part of the story, whereas it felt very, very stilted in the earlier version. Of course, the comic book versions can get around it quite easily. The Marvel version just has that authorial opening as a text panel before anyone starts talking. It's fine in comics, it just doesn't work in big mm. screen versions. But it's interesting seeing what some of the modernizations have done. For example, in Bride and Prejudice, it's not the opening line, but at one point, Lalita, the Elizabeth character, says, Mother thinks that any single man with big bucks is shopping for a wife. <laughs> Which I really like that way of using the sentence, but completely subverting the beauty of the language and yes. making it so much more blunt. And then there's another one called Pride and Prejudice, a Latter-day Comedy, which is a movie where it's set in a college in Utah. I haven't seen it, but I just recently discovered it's available on YouTube, so I will be watching it, and I've now watched the very beginning. And it starts with the Elizabeth character saying as voiceover, It is the truth universally acknowledged that a girl of a certain age and in a certain situation in life must be in want of a husband, <laughs> which I think is a nice turning around of it. And the book Eligible opens with the line, well before his arrival in Cincinnati, everyone knew that Chip Bingley was looking for a wife. <laughs> so all of these are taking that line but giving yes. it a bit of a twist. Yes. And then there's Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which gives it a much less interesting twist. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a zombie in possession of brains must be in want of more brains. But finally, Lizzie Bennet Diaries goes back to having the words exactly as they were stated in the book. But in this case, Lizzie holds up a T-shirt with these words written on it because it's a gift her mother has given her. Something to think about with the adaptations, as distinct from the other variations, is the setting they chose to use. Because, you know, we talked earlier about how the book was published in the 1810s, but the original concept, First Impressions, was written in the 1790s. Well, the adaptations have taken very different period settings. So for some reason, the 1940 version, the movie with Greer Garst and Laurence Olivier, chose to set it 30 years after the book was even published, let alone first conceived. It may have been partly because the the Regency costume just looked funny. It looked probably looked funny to them in the way the 1920s costume with the low waist was looking funny. And so the uh, the one with the very high, the high waist also looked funny. And they were just going back more and more solidly to the proper waist, which was later to turn into the 40s, 50s, big bust, narrow waist mm -hmm. look. Because you're certainly getting, well, you're getting the big skirts in that um, production. In fact, I even read somewhere that while the main cast all had costumes made for this production, a lot of the extras were wearing costumes left over and repurposed from Gone with the Wind. Which again, of course, made... Uh, made that particular style incredibly glamorous in anybody's eyes at that time. Mm. And of course, apparently another um, effect Gone with the Wind had on that production is that the 1940s film is black and white because Gone with the Wind had used up all the colour stock that they had available. There was no more Technicolor film that they could have used to make their film. On the other hand, both miniseries chose to set it in the Regency period with the Empire Line high-waisted dresses Although it was notable that the 1995 version has much lower necklines than the 1980 version where they're definitely buttoned right up to the neck. Yes. Another feature of the 1980 version is BBC budgetary constraints. A lot of the costumes in that were then repurposed for other period dramas in the, <laughs> the 1980s. Yeah. 
the IMDb page on that has a long list of what costumes people have spotted in other productions. <laughs> but the most recent version, the 2005 movie, they chose to set it not in the 1810s, not in the Regency, but instead in the 1790s. I think part of the reason for this was that they wanted to be less chocolate box, less pretty, deliberately less so than the earlier versions. So they went for the, the muddy version. The house seems smaller. It's so close to the farm that there's one scene where you actually have a pig wandering through the house, which feels very wrong. Now, the, the rooms... pig through the house is wrong, but the farmyard and the muck heap quite close is, is not all that inappropriate. Mm -hmm. The rooms also feel small and it sometimes feels like they're almost sitting in the servants' quarters. But yeah, as I said, they're definitely going for the more down-to-earth yes. and for that reason they also chose the 1790s. And the last thing I thought I'd comment on very briefly is the portrayal of Mrs. Bennet in some of these versions. In the 1995 miniseries um, where Alison Steadman played Mrs. Bennet, she's very, very shrieky and over the top, but very fingernails on a blackboard a lot of the time, which I found profoundly irritating when I first watched it. But on re-watching it more recently, I'm finding I can cope with it a lot better, and it is funny. Whereas in the 2005 movie with Brenda Blethyn, she's still funny, she's still vulgar, but there's also just a bit of an element of pathos to her, and and one line in particular that struck me when I saw it is Elizabeth asks her, is marriage really all you think about? And Mrs. Bennet says, and she says this quite sadly, as I said, with a bit of pathos. When you have five daughters, Lizzie, tell me what else will occupy your thoughts and then perhaps you will understand. Which is um, referring back to that thing I said earlier about why is she the only one who seems to care? In Bride and Prejudice, Mrs. Bennet is very much like she is in the book, just transplanted into a, into being a modern Indian mother. Yeah. Um, so she's actually quite nice, but again, a bit vulgar and a bit pushy. Yeah. In the web series Lizzie Bennet Diaries, one of the shticks of that is you don't actually see a lot of the characters except with the main characters doing costume theatre, they call it. Uh, the Lizzie character, whenever she's pretending to be her mother, she's decided that her mother has a southern accent and is a southern belle because <laughs> she's very much tied to this idea of what she calls the 2.5 WPF club, the 2.5 children white picket fence, and that's tying into the whole southern traditional that's why she wants her daughters to get married. Yes. Can I just say my little piece about the mischaracterization or something that made me really cross from the beginning with the 1940s film? Yeah. And that is the way they did Mary. Mary comes on yeah, with the standard scholarly thing and she goes to a ball with silly little glasses on. Is there any way in the world Mrs Bennet would have allowed any of her daughters to go to a ball wearing sort of these disfiguring glasses? If she'd been blind, Mary would have gone without glasses. Yes. So in some of them, Mary does wear glasses, but in others, she doesn't. In the 2005 movie, she definitely doesn't. And in the 1995 one, she mostly doesn't, except when she's playing the piano. So she goes to the Netherfield Ball without glasses, but she does put them on when she's performing. You've been listening to the Reading Jane Austen podcast with me, Harriet, and me, Ellen. We hope you'll join us next time for chapters 7 to 12 of Pride and Prejudice. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, 
and the summarised in a sentence concept was adapted from E.L. Konigsberg's book Silent to the Bone. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We'll talk to you next time.